Hello, and welcome to this episode of Such a Nightmare Conversations About Horror. My name is Catherine Troyer, and I'm so excited, as always, that I get to be joined by Tony Tresca. Hey there! This is a podcast where the horrifically nerdy meets the terrifyingly academic, as we explore that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is for better or worse giving us nightmares. And we are so excited to have you join us today for our double episode where we're going to be thinging it up with The Thing from Another World from 1951 and the 1982, The Thing. I like these like double feature episodes that we do. I'm glad we don't do them a lot because I, I know there are podcasts that like manage in an hour to talk about like 17 movies. I don't know how they do that. I I also don't know how they have time yeah. to watch all the 17 movies for a single that's, hour of content. <laughs> that's also <laughs> also a really good point. But whenever we do whenever we do these, it's it's fun because you know we're taking these films that is like technically this is an adaptation a slash yeah. remake, but like why? Who thought to themselves, you know, this one tiny thing where there are some dogs and it's in the Arctic. I like that. Let's keep that and then go places. And and I felt similarly about our Little Shop of Horrors episode, which was, I think, our last sort of big double feature experience. Yeah, I feel that particularly like when I think there's so much around this film. I This is my first time seeing any version of the thing. I know. Um, which is exciting. And it is it's interesting with films like this, particularly, I think, in examining how they are talked about in pop culture, there's so much conversation around the 1982 version of The yes. Thing, for instance. I mean, I hadn't seen The Thing, but I might as well have. I've heard people talk all about the stakes, the nihilism of it, the kind of yeah. reinterpretation of some of the original themes from the short story that it's based off of, because both of these films are not original. <laughs> Correct. They're both based off of the novella Who Goes There, which we can also sort of weave into our conversation. But I think you you bring up a really good point, and that is that the, the 1982 film is part of the cultural zeitgeist. I mean, there's mm -hmm. even like pretty well-known memes that pop up regularly. You don't even have to be like searching for horror content to still stumble across it. And so it's interesting how that film has taken the limelight even over the original source material of, of Campbell's novella. I'll give a bit of a broad uh, overview for a summary yeah, for folks. Yeah, let's do it. Because they're all fairly similar. The, yeah. It's the conversation, the meat of it will all be in the details. So yes. just so everyone's on the same page, the thing follows aliens. They have crash landed millions of years ago in Antarctica, and this team discovers them. Now these creatures can shapeshift and take on the form of other human beings, much to the chagrin of the human beings who are currently stuck, isolated in Antarctica, now trapped with this alien creature who can pretend to be them. So, horror shenanigans ensue, shapeshifting happens, friendships are broken, and people are killed. And that that's end. the thing. <laughs> that's a very accurate description of sort of the entire narrative and what's interesting is how that can be so accurate for each of the two films and, and the novella 
while simultaneously failing to capture just how distinctly different these texts are in, in some really profound and important ways. Yeah, it really does go to show you, like, there was such a difference between the content and the form. Because content-wise, a lot of them are fairly similar. You're getting the same basic idea. But how it's formally told to you and communicated by each of these artists is just so vastly different. So do you have scholarship? I, before we get jump into it, I, I, I want to check. I, I imagine there is some, because these are fairly popular. There is all of my scholarship, perhaps unsurprisingly, is on the 1982 film. And that's not because there isn't necessarily things on the other film, but just because that's what comes up in, you know, a lot of the searches. And also that's where I thought some of the interesting conversations were having. So the three sort of like scholarship nuggets that I want to drop on people are about different ways that people have been reading John Carpenter's The Thing. And these are elements that to varying degrees can be seen in the novella and the 1951 film. So first, Stephen Prince published a book called The Horror Film through Rutgers. Uh, he's, the, he's the editor of this collection of essays that came out in 2004. And in there, he has an essay specifically. And the essay is called Dread, Taboo, and the Thing Toward a Social Theory of the Horror Film. And Prince begins with the argument that for all of psychoanalysis benefits and, and like the things that it contributes to the horror genre, he's not convinced that it fully captures social or group psychology, which he thinks is a, is a significant part of the horror genre. And, you know, I'm rather lukewarm at the best of times about psychoanalysis, mainly because <laughs> I, I struggle with you know, a scholarship that is often described as, although it is more complex than this, but is often described as, you know, like women just really want penises. And again, that's an oversimplification, but it's really hard sometimes to move past that to see the merit of psychoanalysis. Yeah. But I, I think what Prince is, is getting at about the sort of ways that horror is about social psychology is, is really important and really interesting. So what he says is he looks at like films like Fly and Psycho briefly, but his main argument, obviously, is the title suggests is the thing. And he says, John Carpenter's The Thing is far more than a remake of the 1951 film. Carpenter's version draws more closely on its original source than the short story by John Campbell Jr., published in 1938, an astonishing, astounding, sorry, an astounding science fiction. To provide not a monster in human form as in the earlier film, but a shape-altering, form-shifting monster whose threat lies in the very unpredictability of its appearance. And then it's the next couple of parts where I think Prince begins to make some really interesting arguments. He says that the thing details the breakdown of the team's networks of authority, friendship, and trust as the social order is infiltrated by the ambiguous, quote, thing, a pathogenic organism whose spread is portrayed in and then he kind of talks further about epidemiological terms. And so he's he talks about the fact that this film marks itself off from the 1951 film because the 1951 film is all about the resourcefulness of the human community, right? Our like lone female characters like, I have some ideas and everyone's like, huzzah. And then they, you know, they team up, right? But yeah. in, in the 1982 film, it's like, no, no, we are going to break, right? Through boredom and isolation and, and all sorts of stuff. And so I think he doesn't use these terms, but of course, really in many ways, we're getting the difference between a perfect example between affirmative and disaffirmative horror. Yeah. And there's something fascinating about like about both of about the films, I think, in terms of that element. Because in the like that original the OG, like the black and white film, it is there is something really interesting from having it be a human form, which is very mm -hmm. different than 
the original novel novella that it's based yeah. off of. And a lot of the film criticisms from that time seem to draw some pretty explicit parallels from that representation to kind of the Red Scare and the fears around communism that were coming on and so this supposedly human thing, but is actually very clearly an other. And right. And of course, it's very disturbing because it's it's literally on like not the opposite because plants aren't technically the opposite of humans, but like it's not even in the same classification. Right. Just like a commie would be as far removed from an American <laughs> as you could get. Yeah. Yeah. I think you can definitely tell that the 1951 film is merging out of the success and the sort of enthusiasm that both existed and people wanted to exist in America post-World War II, right? Because, of course, it wasn't just like peaches and roses when soldiers came back and, you know, women had to, like, go back into the workforce and all that stuff. But right. we are seeing, during this period, films like Disney Cinderella, which is like, but wouldn't you rather be a princess than do hard labor? And then we're seeing films like this where it's like, oh, you can have a role, Precious Woman, and it can be a significant and meaningful role but also, if you could step aside so the gentleman can do their part, that would be fantastic. So you see kind of just like all of that in this 1951 film that is definitely not present in the 38 novella and is really not present in Carpenter's film. So I have you read the original novella? I have. I have. So last I year... I dear listeners, I've only, I've, I've only <laughs> had time to grace the Wikipedia page of the novella, but I'm interested in, to hear in what did you think... In true student form. Um, hey, yeah, I, I figured I'd at least be honest hey, with the listeners. I mean, that's <laughs> super fair, as opposed to being like, I really liked what happened on page 20. Uh, so I read, it, I read it last year, and last year, I mean, still 2022, because I mean, academic year, I assigned the novella and the 82 film for my horror adaptation class. Yeah. Fascinating. And, Yes, and it, it was the discussion on the 82 film went really well. I made the mistake of, of assigning this novella towards the end of the semester, so it didn't get read by a lot of people. But to, to me, what's fair. interesting, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's super fair, right? To me, what's interesting about the, the novella is that it almost reads, it, it almost reminds me of like a, an Edgar Allan Poe story that ha where he's got the sort of locked room premise. Right, where we don't know a lot of the information because he's not really going into the weeds of the science, but he is constantly reminding us of just the perils of being trapped and of being trapped with someone, something that is insidious and, and going to sort of destroy possibly the entire world. And what's interesting is to see how this morphs eventually into Carpenter's version and even the 1951 film, because the McReady character shows up in, in all versions, but it, of course, it's Kurt Russell's performance that like we identify with that character. And it's his, his performance that I think actually makes the character not just a stock figure. Because I felt like in the novella, every, like, I didn't remember who any of them were. They were just all sort of white scientist dudes. That, and, and sometimes much, I was like, who are these folks? Pretty much how I felt about the movie itself. Yeah. The, the, the 51 version of yes. adaptation. I'm like, I guess they were all individual characters, roles. And there were the there were a couple of times I, I had trouble remembering who was who, just because okay. they were all pretty much the same, except for the doctor who was cast as the sort of like mad scientist because he had a beard. Right. And so, but like the other ones were just kind of typical. And, and they were all dudes. dressed fairly similarly to yes. 
And I think, I, again, maybe that's arg. I think that might be the weirdly an argument. And maybe that's what it's about, but that actually doesn't make a lot yeah. of sense. But given that no. it's about communism, it's criti- seemingly critiquing yes. communism. And But alas, I don't know. I'm not going to read yeah, too I, much into that I, 51. I think <laughs> that the 1951 film actually is trying to give us what would be the opposite of, of a good communist. And that's the sort of like renegade maverick, because we have the captain who kind of abides by the rules, but doesn't. And we have the the woman who you know, kind of fits the womanly mold, but doesn't. And so I think it's yeah. trying, but I just, I struggle like a, to, it's, to it's remember It's a slightly them. more complicated yeah. version of yeah. the narrative than it could have been, but it's still like a, yeah, it's 50, a 1950s version of the tale. Exactly. And I think the most important distinction between the novella and the 1951 film and the 1982 film is that in Campbell's story, it's really about the price we might pay if we decide that science and scientific investigation should replace common sense and oh, sort of the the good of the better. Because there's a lot more discussion where they're like, I don't know. I mean, what if we actually make profound scientific advances? And then they're like, yeah, but we in doing so, we may put in jeopardy the entire world. And of course, they're really struggling with that. Whereas I think in the 51 film, they clearly thrust all of that onto the to the sort of mad scientist, and he's the unreasonable, right? Right. Yeah. It's clearly like this yeah. one guy who's like, ah, let me, yes. let me play with my alien guy. It would yes. be so much fun for science. Exactly. Exactly. Whereas Campbell is really doing what I think science fiction at its best does, and that is question the role that science plays in in our lives and the and the decisions we have to make that don't always match cold logical conclusions and that's not as much a part of the 82 film right because they're not really interested in the science i was it's interesting how that theme for all of the 82's claims of being a much more faithful adaptation to the original novella which is one of the things that i guess it it was at least in the marketing and Mm -hmm. how the filmmakers themselves talk about the film is one is their intention because they're not, not as big of fans of the 51 film right, and right. sought to bring it back a little bit closer to the novella. But that's interesting that the strand about uh, scientific inquiry at the cost of human life is kind of abandoned for the 82 film in favor of some other themes around the coldness of humanity uh, yes. and what you're willing to do. <laughs> yes. And this brings us to the other two sort of scholarships that I just kind of wanted to quickly mention. So there's a short piece that was published in the 2012 edition of Journal Popular Film and Television on mutations and metamorphoses. Body horror is biological horror. And this is by Ronald Allen Lopez Cruz. And mm-hmm. Cruz is talking about a lot of different films. The main cover of the article features a, a scene from The Fly. But there's a line in here where he's actually referencing another scholar whose name is Andrew Tudor. So Andrew Tudor has this quote that says, if we cannot rely on our own bodies, then on what can we rely? Right. And then, and then Cruz says, these words from Tudor capture the essence of the terror derived from the works of body horror. And then sort of talks about the fact that that's this own sort of thing. And I think that's where the 1982 film is more interested in going, right? It's, it's a, again, going back to that concept of disaffirmative. It's asking if maybe we're sort of fundamentally flawed as a society, as humans, as biological entities that we have no no hope of not being the thing, right? And because we may not have an alien take our form and mutate and add some like dog faces, but all of us 
are biological creatures that are going to decompose, that are going to engage in like some really embarrassing biological functions. And so I, I, I feel like it's, it's talking more about that. And the last article is about, and you know how I feel about things like this, the erotics of body horror. <laughs> and I'm not okay. sure I buy right. that argument quite as much because I don't know, but the, the hey, listen, author it's argue- a, it's a It's a film from the 1980s. So naturally yes. that means there's I mean, got to you be know. some scholar out there who's like, let me make the erotic argument. <laughs> yeah, but, but they say where the thing powerfully registers the anguish and horror occasioned by the recognition of human subjection to evolutionary process. Other texts sort of affirm this trauma as a source of being. And that comes from a, a piece by Eric White. So that's the scholarship. And I want to th- turn back to, I think, to the 1982 film, because that's, in many ways, I think the more interesting film. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the kind of like, the only other part that, I thought that there was an interest, some interesting tension that was drawn from the journalist character within oh yeah 51, the 1950s that's the only other thing but i i'll but i agree largely that's the only Actually, other let's... thing that i thought was kind of of interest about the about the 1951 was this kind of there was some desire to kind of get the story out about what was going on there but then some tension and not allowing that to come to fruition and yeah so some desire to at least communicate their experience with the outside world that is is that very much prevalent in the no. novella at all? No, okay. the novella feels very claustrophobic, and I so can't more remember like the eighty-two film exactly. Yeah. And I can't remember because I I have a very short-term memory, and it has been about six months since I read it. But I don't remember there being really any ability to contact the outer world, just like in the eighty-two film. And it's interesting because when I read a lot of of books. I mean, we all do this, right? Like we we craft the the setting and the scene in my mind. But there's something about Campbell's narrative that like I just imagined a group of men almost in a like blank white box having these yeah. conversations because it feels very sterile. It would have made for a really great play, I think, but like a play oh, that happens yeah. almost in the same way that like 12 Angry Men does where there's just like a table and they're just kind of having a conversation because it just doesn't have that same engagement with the outside world. But you're so correct. The 1951 film is so determined to add this layer of, you know, the need to communicate. And I don't, I don't know why it does that, but I think it's an important distinction. I, I, I think it does come back to not to make the whole 1951 that it's just like some boring thing about communism but i do think it is related to that oh, absolutely and i and like their fear they're like all right we are the good americans we've got to get the word out about this and yes. then even in still it's kind of like oh but can the people know this will they scare yeah so i think there's still those fears of like like you were saying it's attempting some nuance in kind of how it talks about it and like oh yeah even maybe even americans will cover up what's going yeah. on sometimes but I still think that it ultimately really is barely about that. And that was just something that kind of happens in the background that I found interesting. I think it's important that you bring it up because I I don't want to imply that the 1951 film is simplistic, right? It's it's surprisingly robust considering that, you know, it's a 1951 creature feature, essentially. And I, and I also was pretty well shot for the 50, yes, for, it for was. 1951. Yes, it was. The cinematography in it is pretty remarkable. I got to give it that. And there are these levels of complexity. And and I think a good example is the character of Nikki Nicholson, played by Margaret Sheridan. She's interesting. And she's kind of that, like, again, odd mix between this very 
progressive woman and also, you know, the love slash sex centrist, right? And so we have sort of that element. But I think that you're correct that the the use of the reporter does allow for glimpses of a potentially disaffirmative text. Yeah. Not successfully, because at the end of the day, huzzah humans and huzzah America. But there are some kind of funny moments where like the military is like, we well, should just blow it up. And they're like, oh, good. Glad to know that they told us to do that because we already did that and that didn't work. And now we can blame them. You know, and there's just kind of like these couple of moments that reminds us that everything isn't perfect. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's like this family comes together and it's it's this true, you expect like Eye of the Tiger to start playing, you know, while they're all gathering their supplies and each one of them's contributing something meaningful. And the only one who's really on the, the outside is, of course, the scientist whose last name is Voorhees, uh, which is amusing to me. I did not yeah. catch that. Yeah, it's uh yeah, his name is his name is Voorhees because I paused it. Well, so he's one of the scientists. The main scientist who's like been growing small alien plants is Carrington, but there is another scientist president whose name is Voorhees, and I always wondered if that was if someone had kind of claimed that. I can't imagine yeah. it feels really not like a common last name. But yeah, the the role of this of the reporter, the need to be able to take the news out, but also their willingness to keep certain things secret, right? To say right. that for the greater good. We're, we're going to keep this element quiet is interesting. Yeah. And so I think it at least, it at least allows some like element, more elements of tension. And that's a, that's pretty, that's a pretty interesting element that's not included in, in the 1982 film. But no, I, other than that, I, I think I'm ready to jump forward. Uh, yeah. 30 years. So, you know, we have a night, the 1982 film, which is going to be increasing the sense of isolation. It's going to be increasing profoundly the sense of paranoia. And of course, through practical effects and also the nature of the, the alien, it's really asking us questions about liminality and uncanniness, right? In the 1951 film, they're like, it is a plant. The right. end. This is what it is. And yeah, it can maybe take other forms, but it is clearly biologically a plant. Whereas the 82 film's like, what if we didn't know? What if it's kind of everything and therefore nothing? One of the things that, that I think manages to be amazing about the 82 film and has prevented it from feeling like it has aged is the use of practical effects. Yes, I was, I, I agree 100%. The film looks gorgeous. I think it just is this, the attention to detail that you had to pay back when you everything had a budget attached to it yes. and like in front of you and it was everybody's time that you were wasting yes. um, and film costs money film costs money and so you really had to think through how you were going to communicate these elements and i think it has just meant that these practical effects here the tentacles the blood the transformation oh it all looks so good like i this yeah. looks better than the creature effects you see in modern horror oh, absolutely films, by far the locations, the mixing, because it's not all, it's not all shot on location, but it, a lot of it is shot in location out in Alaska and in and remote parts with a lot of snow. And they did, even when they were shooting in a sound box, they would, it was, it's crazy. They would shoot in LA hundred degrees, but they would lower the temperature artificially to 28 <laughs> degrees so that they could work better That's and get fantastic. more and capture a more realistic effect. And you know, at this time, John Carpenter, he has the clout to be able to do these things. Yeah. Yeah. He's come, he's a big studio guy. He's come off some big stu horror studio yeah. hits. Yeah. So 
he has the clout to be able to say, no, I want these real, it's going to be more expensive, yes, to fly us all out or to, it's 100 degrees to ch- artificially chill it to 28, <laughs> but we got to do it yes. for the art. And I think it shows. I mean, it clearly shows. Yes, it absolutely shows. And one of the things I love about this film is something that I actually also appreciate about the original Alien film, and that is that we know conceptually that this is a, supposed to be a small physical space, right? Like, yes, the the ship and Alien looks really big, but like the amount that they're actually able to use seems relatively small. Obviously, any sort of exploration center is going to be small by nature because you just can't be heating up that much space in, in the Arctic. But we nevertheless are denied that sense of meaning, right? Like we're not able to build a clear like, okay, here's where they are. Here's where they are in reference to other things. And I think that that just increases the anxiety of the 1982 film because you're like, where, where am I? And more importantly, where is the thing? And those moments where we're reminded that, you know, humans are not, are really not supposed to be in Antarctica. Like that's, we're just really not supposed to be in places where you can have a snow out right? Like, that's just not, we're soft and delicate. And so I think that all of the ways that the film sort of reminds us of just the dangers of saying again and again, what if we just went and explored and saw what happened? I, I think another thing that it's really done well with the body horror element of it is the, the piece of scholarship that you brought up in the second scholarship, I believe it was, in which you talked about the not being able to trust uh, yes. your own body or your own senses. And it re- I think that relates it's in, it must have been a strange time in the 80s for to have <laughs> two cabin fever movies back to back with The Shining and this yeah. that are both so much about just the cabin fever and the distrust that comes from other human beings who you supposedly know exist and have that deep connection to. But and and I think it's also interesting. That is a deeply unpleasant feeling to be set to be set with, and I think that relates to why both films, The Shining and this thing, were poorly, very poorly received at the time at which they came out. And when they're because they're entering into a culture of the '80s that is very brouhaha, go America, yes. we love everything is good, and then you have these two really nihilistic, cold. They're very they're very voyeuristic. They both. Uh, that you get more of a sense of the space in The Shining than you yes. do in The Thing, for sure. But it's still pretty alienating in in the environment, both related to snow. Bad time to live in any place with snow. Uh, <laughs> this is I true. watched I watched this film uh, in, in Colorado uh, as a snowstorm was coming. Excellent! Um, Yay! Perfect time to watch it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's excellent. If only you lost power. And then I had known and I could have planted something to like rustle in the corner of your room. I like that point that you said about the deeply uncomfortable sensations that both The Shining and The Thing are encouraging and, and how in many ways they're they're touching too close to the nerve. Because you're right that the 80s and 90s, particularly the 80s, particularly under Reagan, are periods that are going to be very like sort of pro-America. They are the periods that individuals who want us to return to former glory are often thinking of when they're when they're talking about that but it's also the time when you know we have the just say no campaign which is built on this premise of like there's these scary things out there that you know are constantly encroaching upon our children's safety it's also the time of the satanic panic and and so this this like fear of what if 
the thing that we are most worried about is indeed in our homes and any given day and could look completely safe. You know, I mean, and again, that goes back to, I mean, we're still in the Cold War, right? We're still very much in the Cold War. Right. And I think that that's very explicit in the thing, just starting from the fact that, like, it's the Russians that ensure that the Americans are contaminated, right? With that opening scene of the dogs, like, you're immediately against them because you're like, how dare you shoot an animal? And then you're like, how dare yeah. you not successfully have killed that animal? You know, like, there's no, there's no winning for them. And that's yeah, oh, that, very that's clear. A, yeah. The opening scene was very, was very interesting for me. I had not, I was certainly was not expecting a shootout with the dog. Yeah. I was, which immediately was right away that right there. I imagine too, like you're, you're shooting it at man's best friend, a, yeah. a, a doggo. It's actively kind of touching at the nerves of Americans yes. and yes. kind of, and it's starting there. That's like where it starts. Yes, yeah. And then it only continues to escalate from there and. I think it's so right in it's a much more interesting articulation of the of the fear from within than I think the 50s the 1951 yes. is able to kind of play with and I think that really is just because of I there's so much uncertainty that comes from you really truly have no idea who is going to be infected and where it's going to come I was constant again first my first time watching right. the 82 film for and I was I was very surprised as to how many people went down and yes. I was constantly I was constantly guessing as to whom was going to be an alien and and it was kind of shocking when they got some stuff wrong. And I think that what's so fascinating about who who's actually thinged is that it's explicitly stated that even the characters might not know, right? right. That it is possible to be mimicked so efficiently, so effectively that you don't even know that you're no longer human. And then, then it raises all these questions like, okay, if that's the case, then what is the difference between something that, that is technically extraterrestrial in form, or I guess in like genetic makeup, but in form as a human and like in its essence as a human versus something that, you know, we're like, this is, this was born human, right? And I think it, it raises some really interesting questions about what actually matters in determining identity and determining categorization social belonging all of those things yeah and because the and the thing the element that the film really seeks to explore is like i said social belonging and yes. the and kind of the fears that arise from being excluded from the group or even just being suggested to be different from yes. the group yeah the, i think the scene that is you know so of course there are some images that are very memorable the sort of tentacle um, like dogapede. The dog, yeah. Yeah, you know, like that's definitely memorable. But the scene that always freaks me out is is when they're testing the blood. The and, blood, and yeah. In part because I know I know how you feel normally about jump scenes, but that is such an amazing jump scare where you know, like that's a good use because they have ratcheted up that tension so well, high. And also because the film doesn't really it doesn't rely that much on jump scares. Honestly, even, which is impressive because there's a lot of practical effect, creature yes. effects that they could easily jump scare you at, but they, what I, but how you can tell this is an incredible filmmaker is they don't need to use those jump scares. They're exactly. just, they're willing, they've so well thought out the creature effects that they're just willing to show it to you. They're like, just yeah. look at it and we'll yeah. let you be disgusted by yes. this in itself. But, yes. Which is, like you said, a very, very bold move, but it's, it's also one choice, that, like, that 
proves that Carpenter and team are just really good at what they're doing. But that scene, it's very anxiety producing because not a not only do you not know what's going to happen, you don't know if any of them are going to be contaminated. You know you can't trust the word of any of them because they can't trust the word themselves. But like you said, there is that additional layer of just the sort of the witch hunt feel of, you know, like if you don't, if we don't feel like you belong appropriately, then maybe you don't. And the fact that we have childs and nulls that are both being played by Black actors in, in a setting that is otherwise very white uh, in terms of the people and in terms and of the, the snow. And the snow and the snow. Yeah, yeah, that's, you know, I mean, you can feel it's it's easy to empathize with What's childs and nulls. Kirk Russell says we need somebody. He won't hand him the gun. They're like, we need somebody who's more even tempered or something. Yes, yes. And you just you're like, that's not what you wanted to say. You're no. like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and it's horrifying. It's hard to it's hard to watch. But yes. that's the point. I'm like, yes, <laughs> yes. So we go back to Prince's point that that this is a film that is ultimately about how how easy it is to destroy any sense of of community any sense of belonging because we actually haven't built systems that want ultimately for there to be inclusivity and belonging right like if we had built systems that allowed for that we wouldn't have systemic racism instead we're like no we're gonna have a system that's you know built on meritocracy and built on capitalism but then we're going to be surprised when people are worried that they feel alienated isolated and like they're competing the role with of, each other yes for in order to be heard and to have their identity yes. inside believed and yeah and i'm and that's the fundamental thing that's going on here i guess they're just yeah. abstracting at the thing and with some guns and some dudes in antarctica <laughs> yes yes and that's why i think this film remains so relevant so watchable and of course i mean the production quality but i, I think that that we haven't moved past any of the fears and anxieties that are driving this film, including the final minutes of the film, which are, are often considered the most famous because we have this ambiguity that no one really wants to sit with. And, you know, Ridley Scott eventually said, by the way, in Blade Runner, here, here's exactly how I want you to read the character of Decker. But, but the thing denies us that, right? And Carpenter's not really interested, rightly so, in giving us that answer of of who at the end if anyone is the thing and will they survive and does it matter right if like if they're themselves just genetically different does it matter yeah i think I, to ask what happens at the end of the thing is to almost fundamentally miss the point of it yeah i it's i think it would be the same as if you at were like excuse me paul tremblay can you please tell me what happens at the end of uh the cabin at the end of the world does right. the world end it's the same it's, it's fundamentally the same thing it's not about that it's about the journey of how you got there and the questions that were raised along the way because i'm like well oh go ahead yeah go i'm glad that you mentioned Tremblay because actually the end of head full of ghosts there's a, a moment of ambiguity there that he in his notes says is explicitly a reference to the thing so there's a moment where mary is leaving and she exhales and you know creates a puff of air and we're supposed to wonder then is she actually mary or has she been possessed or you know whatever it might be and of course he wants that that level of ambiguity to match 
the thing. So I'm glad that you you brought up that specific example because you're right. That's not the point, but the fact that that's often what people come fixated on. There are so many videos where people are breaking down like, you can see in this moment that he breathed, therefore he's human. And it's like, he's an actor. He had to breathe. You know what I mean? There's just almost so many. Of, it's kind of crazy then, like the process then. It, it's crazy how good the filmmaking is in this film that people watching the film can get so lost in the witch hunt that's presented yes. that even after the film closes, you are still so fixated on trying to figure out who the idea, who the human is versus who the thing is so that you can have a satisfying ending. So you can feel you understood the actions were justified. The ends justified the means, but there is, that's not, that's not life. You don't ever get those like simple, easy answers. And so I think it's a, it's such, again, just proves to the filmmaking, how good it is that you just, that so many audience members get so lost in that yes. witch hunt element that it continues yes. even once the film is over. And in Campbell's novel, there's a similar affect where they think they've stopped the, the thing, but there's also an albatross that is that they noticed might have been affected, but they don't know for sure. And so they kind of end with this, like, but what about the albatross? And they're like, we don't know. Here's what we do know. And and I think you're right that that, that perpetual quest for knowledge, despite the fact that it's very clearly detrimental, is is a critical component of all versions of the thing. Yeah, because I, I, I guess the thing probably would have killed them all one by one, maybe. Where I guess we're not really privy to that because it's, they immediately attack the creature once when every time it's revealed. Again, that's, I guess I don't want to be yeah, like, I mean, maybe they should have played with it some more no. and asked <laughs> it some questions before yeah. killing it with fire or something. But honestly, we don't know. I, it, that's yeah. We know in the fifty one film, right? Because he's like, Sir, right. I'm here to help you." And then you know the, the the thing pushes him aside. But you're right. There's a lot that we don't know, but we're willing to act anyway. And that yeah. is a terrifying aspect of humanity. And then even when you well, you're you you don't know anything, and so you just act. But then the film is like, even when, even if you do take the time to gather all your knowledge and think about your choices. Are you really going to make any better of a choice after that? And that's also scary. <laughs> we would love to know your thoughts about the things from Campbell's Who Goes There to the 1951 film to the 1982 film. In my version of the novella, there's also an introduction by William F. Nolan, who did Logan's Running. And he wrote a treatment for a 1978 film for Universal Studios that would have been another version of the thing. And I don't remember exactly how his was different. I just remember he was really salty that Carpenter got to make his film and said, this is a story we keep coming back to, I think, for good reason. So we would love to hear from you about your thoughts on, on these films. Tony, if yeah. they want to get a hold of us, how should they do so? Well, they can check out uh, our social medias uh, or our a Gmail, which are in the description of this podcast. You can get a hold of us there. We'd love to hear from you. You can also give it, leave us a review wherever you get your podcast from. That really helps us yes. get the word out about what's going on here. Yeah. So th thank you so much for listening. And yes. we will have uh, some more episodes for you. Yes. What's uh, next? What's next? We are returning back to the Friday the 13th franchise. We're going to be having a new beginning with Friday the 13th, a new beginning. 
This is the fifth one uh, in the franchise, 1985. Uh, have you seen this one yet? I have not. Neither Good have times. I. It'll Good be, times. We're going in blind and we're going to bring it to you. <laughs> Excellent. In the meantime, we want to thank you for listening to our nightmares. And have a spectacular day. Bye.